Amen. Well, good evening, Redemption Tempe. When AC reads scripture, it feels like I got a hype man before I come out. I love it. Thank you, man. Uh, my name is Will Vakurvich. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, am excited to share with you this evening. We'll be camped out in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, the first chunk that AC read. If that feels familiar to you, uh, it's because we had a great opportunity to hear from Jim Mullins last week on the same passage of scripture. Uh, and, and I get a chance to, to come this week and share kind of a different perspective on it, uh, focus on a few different things than Jim focused on. And I, I'm excited for this opportunity. Jim and I got a chance to talk about it throughout the week. It's cool that this passage is talking about God bringing different people together to create his church. And we get an opportunity to look at the same passage from different perspectives. Uh, and hopefully God will bless our church through that. So we'll be primarily in chapter 3 focusing in on verse 6. But we'll be throughout the Bible um, noticing some different things. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 3. If not, then raise your hand and one of, our, one of our ushers would love to give you a copy of God's Word. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, consider this our gift to you. Um, our, our prayer is that everyone would be able to grow in their knowledge and understanding of who God is. And, and one of the best ways, uh, the best way to do that is through his word. Another really, really good way to do that is what you're doing now, uh, gathering together as his people together. So as the ushers are handing out Bibles, uh, would you guys pray with me before we jump in this, this evening? Father, thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for um, a, a good day, Lord. Thank you for waking us up, and thank you for your new mercies this morning, and thank you for your love and your grace that has sustained us throughout the day. Father, we ask that you would speak clearly to us through your word, through your spirit. Father, we ask that those areas of our hearts that need conviction, you would convict us with gentleness. Father, in the areas of our hearts that, that need uh, encouragement, that you would lavish your love upon us. Lord, we need your grace. We need you. We desire to experience and know and love and trust and obey you more. Father, would you use this time to continue to form us into a more accurate image, a more faithful and true witness of the amazing things you have done and are doing. Lord, would you bless this time for the sake of those who don't yet know you, that you would continue to shape us into the image of your son for the benefit of, of the watching and waiting world. Jesus, we love you. Would you help us to love you more? We ask these things in your name. Amen. So as Ricardo was talking through who's going to pre be preaching which chapters and laying out the preaching calendar, um, he, he told me about this, that I would be in the first part of three. So I flip there and start reading. And I noticed this, this is where Paul is talking about this mystery, this mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Christ, and I don't know about you guys, but it felt kind of like Paul was telling me a secret, so I was really intrigued. I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, I can do this one. I'm excited for this, and I remember when I was first coming to faith and, and reading through um, this chapter and, and seeing, like, Paul, he, he does this little, like, build-up thing, right? Like, the mystery that was entrusted to me, and it's like, oh, what's it going to be? What's the secret? We all want to know secrets, right? This mystery of Christ that was revealed, it was talked about in the old days, but it's not fully revealed like it is fully revealed now. And he's like, the mystery of Christ is Jews and Gentiles are together. And it kind of felt like a, like, wah, 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 like, that's it? Which is, like, really just shows how little I understood the story and how little life experience I had when I first read this. But getting a few years under my belt and understanding how difficult it is to get people together 
I started to see, like, that actually is a mystery. It, it really is difficult. And I remember having these first experiences of, like, different cultures when I went to college in Canada. And I was the guy from California, and so I would hear all the things like, oh, California, do you surf to school? <laughs> no, Canada, do you take a dog sled to school? Like, what are we talking about here? And that continued after college. I went to work for the YMCA in Oakland, California, and it was an incredible experience. It was one of the first times, it was the first time in my life where I was, um, one, the only guy who worked for an organization, and the only white person who worked for an organization. And the people that I worked with were, like, incredibly welcoming and kind and hospitable. But after a few months, I realized, like, I feel different. And this is actually the first time that I've really, like, felt different in a place. And I was able to think through, like, no one's been mean to me. Nobody's treated me any differently. I just realized that I'm stepping into a different culture, that we all bring this cultural lens. And so they had jokes that they talked about that I'm like, I don't know that movie. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know that song or that show or that cultural reference. And when I make a joke about something, you don't get it either. But you're still really nice to me, and I appreciate that. I, I think the biggest uh, way that this point was, was kind of driven home for me was um, more than like a cross-cultural experience, but was actually like a, a family experience when my wife and I got married. So I've, I got her permission for all the stories I'm about to tell, just so, just so you know. Uh, but we realized early on in, in our dating uh, experience um, that we came from different families. We had different backgrounds. And, and, you know, we like, we fell in love, and we're going to get married and have the wedding and everything. And then we start planning for the wedding, and we quickly realize, like, there are people that we want to invite to our wedding. That, like, if we have alcohol at our wedding, they will not come. And there are people that we want to invite to our wedding, like, if we don't have alcohol, they will not come. And so we had to start to navigate these waters of how do we bring these two different families together for this event and hopefully for our lives together and not kill each other in the middle of it. And, and so there was lots of different ways that this was just very clear. So you guys know, um, my parents divorced when I was five. So I have, like, my birth mom and then my stepmom. And then I'm now about to get married and have a mother-in-law. So I lived with my dad and stepmom. That's my closest relationship. So the first time my mother-in-law met my birth mom was like two days before the wedding. And my mother-in-law called my birth mom by my stepmom's name. So that was like super fun. Went over very, very well. Um, but, but we kept having these experiences, you know, at, at our wedding, we just saw these people that are so, so different. One of Aaron's aunts came and, and her husband had a lot of money. So she was like super dressed up. And then my grandma, um, bless her heart, her dentures broke the week of my wedding. And so she, her thought process was like, I don't want to show up with broken dentures and like people would be distracted and like no one would look at the bride, everyone would look at my grandma's dentures. So her solution was instead of wearing the broken dentures, she would wear a bright blue dust mask because that wouldn't, you know, draw any type of attention at a wedding. The, the good news about that though is that it distracted people from her slippers that she chose to wear to my wedding. Um, we, the venue that we got, uh, gosh, it was just a mess now that I'm telling the story. Uh, the guy who owned the venue knew my grandpa. 
And so he gave us a discount. And he was kind of sneaky. So we're going through all the, you know, contract and everything. And he says, hey, just so you know, we, um, you know, at every event that we host here, uh, we, we honor the military. And we're like, hey, that's great. Aaron's dad uh, was in the Marines. I have family that was in the Air Force and in the Army. And, you know, that's, we, we support that. We support the tr troops. That's, that's great. Um, what he didn't explain was how he honored the military. So literally halfway through our reception, he says, okay, at every event here, we, we honor the, the, the military and the country. So he played the entire Star Spangled Banner and had everyone stand up, and that was fine. And then he proceeded to go through each branch of the military and ask for anyone who served in that branch to stand up and play the entire theme song of that branch of the military. Which, like, for some, it's like, hey, great, there's, you know, a handful of Marines and a handful of people who are in the Army, like, sorry, Coast Guard. No one we know served in the Coast Guard, but we definitely listened to this song in its entirety. So, like, 35 minutes of my reception was playing all of these different songs. It, it was great. It, it, it turned out well. There was one other thing. Um, my wife and I tell this story differently. So if you hear my wife tell this story, what she would say is during the dancing, I threw her grandma on the floor. <laughs> That's not my perspective. I mean, I feel like if you're going to dance and you can't keep up, even if you're 85, like that's not my problem. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. Just joking. Grandma fell, but she's okay. She's all right. She's all right. No worries. But it was clear throughout many humorous, now humorous encounters that, that when you bring different types of people together, it is difficult. There are difficult expectations. I had friends from my past that during our wedding were doing um, things that probably shouldn't have been done, and there were other people at our wedding that are like praying for their salvation in the middle of the reception, and, and, and it was just lots of different types of people coming together. But there's something beautiful about that, and there's something very, very difficult about that. And I think this is one of the things that Paul is realizing here as we're working through the book of Ephesians. He's talking about how in Christ, heaven and earth is being reconciled. The heart of the gospel is this reconciliation, that there's reconciliation between God and man. We saw it in the whole first half of Ephesians chapter 2. In the whole second half of Ephesians chapter 2, we see that the gospel is not just reconciliation between God and man, but because of reconciliation between God and man, it's reconciliation between man and each other. God is creating this new community of his people that used to consist of, of the Jews, of the nation of Israel, and now it's being broadened to include all nations. And so as we think through what Paul describes as the mystery of the gospel or the mystery of Christ, there, there's three things I want to notice this evening. First is that this gospel is so much bigger than us. The second is that this gospel invites us in. And then finally, that the gospel not only is bigger than us, that it not only invites us in, but it, it shapes us, it, it forms us, it, it changes us as we're around. So... First, the gospel is, is bigger than us. And this is something that I feel like, maybe not for you, but for me, I am constantly pressing against in my own life. I functionally believe that God cares about me, and in the times that I stop to actually think about someone else, I guess God cares about them too. 
but really he's like most concerned with me, with my marriage, with my job, with my kids, with my parenting, with my problems, with my issues, with my insecurities, with my fears, with my anxieties. And I guess if I stop and think about it, like, yeah, he's got the whole world in his hands, but really it's kind of about me. It's kind of about what I can get from God and how I can understand God and how God can give me warm fuzzies as I sing songs in church and all of these me-focused things that honestly our culture tells us it's all about and we just kind of believe it. But as I, I think about this passage and I see that Paul is acknowledging this is something that was kind of revealed before, but now is revealed in its fullness in and through Christ, it got me thinking like, well, how was it revealed? And you know, like when you start pulling the loose string on your shirt and you realize like, oh, there goes my whole shirt. Uh, I, I started to understand that God's heart for all people, for the nations was so much bigger than I thought. So we're gonna run through a series of passages. This is not exhaustive. If you want to look into this, like, buckle up. It will take you a while. This is just a handful of the passages that, that show that God's heart has always been for all peoples or all nations or all kingdoms or all cultures. There's different words that are used. We talk around here a lot about Genesis chapter 12 and the Abrahamic covenant where God makes a promise to one person that he would bless this family and through the blessing of this family that all nations would be blessed. We talk about this a lot. It forms the way we engage in mission and our understanding of life, that every good and perfect gift comes from God and God blesses us with those gifts so that others may be blessed. But it's not only there. We see that in Genesis chapter 12, that as God is starting his people, starting this nation that would turn into, that would be his people, we see that at every major point along the way, there's this continued theme of God being for all nations. So from Genesis chapter 12, we can flip to Exodus chapter 9. And here we see the story of God saving his people. So God made good on his promise to Abraham. He and his wife had kids. Those kids had kids, and their family grew. And through a series of events that you should read about in the end of Genesis, they made their way down to Egypt. They had found favor in Egypt. But a new pharaoh came to power and, and enslaved God's people. And after 400 years of enslavement, God raised up a deliverer named Moses for them. And Moses is, is about to speak to Pharaoh. This is in the middle of the plagues as God is working out the process of rescuing his people from captivity. This is what it says in Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that for the purpose of my name may be proclaimed in all the earth, not just for his people, not just for the nation of Egypt, but throughout the earth. So that us sitting here in a nation that was not even conceived of at that time could read this story and get a glimpse of who God is. Get a glimpse of how much he loves his people and how his heart is for their liberation, not their oppression. 
We go from, from Exodus, we can turn to Deuteronomy as God is giving his people the law, as God is giving his people these statutes and commandments to form and shape their identity. God has brought them out of the slavery of Egypt and they're wandering in the wilderness and he gives them the law to, to show them what he wants them to be like as his people. Moses says this, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this, this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? God is giving his people this law to form them so that the nations will look at Israel and say, there is wisdom there. There's something different and distinct about these people. Somehow through the actions of God's people, the watching world would be able to identify there's something about how close and near their God is to them. There's something about the intimacy that they experience with their God that would be intriguing, that would cause the nations to ask questions, something that would draw them in. And so as God starts this story, this interaction with his people, we see it's about all nations. As he saves them in the biggest story in Jewish history through the Exodus, it's about all nations. As he's giving them the law, it's for the sake of all nations. And we can continue. In Joshua, Joshua has just led God's people across the Jordan River and into the promised land. The geographic location that God had promised Abraham all those generations before that he would give him. That they would have a land that was their own, a land flowing with milk and honey. And as they're going into this land, this is what it says in Joshua chapter 4. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, he's reminding them of God saving them out of Egypt. Which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. You may fear the Lord your God forever. At these key moments, we see God reminding his people, hey, you're about to go into this land that I promised you. Don't forget why I'm doing this. Don't forget why God dried up the waters of the Jordan so that you could pass through. Don't forget why God saved you from Egypt and, and dried up the Red Sea so that the nations would know. The nations would know that God is mighty and powerful. In, in 1 Kings, this is Solomon's prayer of dedication as he has finished construction of the temple, where God's presence would dwell with his people in the heart of the nation, in, in the middle of Jerusalem, as God's presence is entering into the, to the temple to make its dwelling place there. Solomon has this beautiful prayer of dedication at this crucial moment in the nation's history. God's presence is making its home in the, in the heart of the temple. And this is one of the things that Solomon stops to pray for. Solomon says, likewise, when a foreigner, not someone from the nation of Israel, not an ethnic Jew, who is not of your people Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake 
For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. This is profound. Solomon, who at this point in his life is known as the wisest king on earth, is praying to God that as he, as he fills up this temple, that when somebody who's not from their nation, not from God's people, sees what God is doing, hears about the mighty acts of God, and they think there might be something to this, and, and they throw out those first feeble prayers to God. God, I, I don't even know if you're real. I don't know if you exist. I don't know who you are. I don't know who your people are. But if you're real, then. Maybe some of us have had those prayers before. Someone prays when that happens before faith, before obedience, before adoption into God's people, God's family. Answer them. Answer them so that the nations may know who you are for your name's sake. The assumption here is that the nations all around Israel would be seeing something. They would be seeing that God is doing something in and through his people. That there's power, God's mighty hand. That, that there's this God who saves them, his outstretched arm for his people. And that that would be intriguing. That would be attractive. That would be a contrast community in the midst of these nations. There's something different about these, these people that just draw them in. And so we see throughout the story at these key points, God is reminding his people, hey, it's not just about you. It's about all nations. It's about the peoples. It's about everyone on earth that I desire to be in relationship with. We see this reiterated in the Psalms. This is how the people of Israel prayed, what formed their theology about who God is day in and day out. In Psalm um, 86, it says this, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. This is just one of them. If you look at this through the Psalms, it's throughout the, the entire book. There's psalm after psalm about all the nations, so that all the nations may know. All the nations will come and bow before you. All the nations will praise you. All the nations will worship. There are these promises. God said, I made a promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through you. It is going to happen. The word of the Lord endures forever. His promises are sure and trustworthy. He says, all nations will come. This is a promise. We can continue. Last one. In Isaiah 25. So this theme is also throughout the prophets. When God's people were not living according to God's law, then God would send his prophets to remind his people about the law. This is how you're supposed to live. And if you don't live according to the law, there will be consequences. And if you do live according to the law, there will be blessings. And he also gave his prophets these visions, these hopes for the future, these snapshots of what God will do. And so this is one of those. In Isaiah 25, it says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from 
all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken he will do this he is doing this at this point in his in our context in human history there is no cultural geographic center of Christianity it's spreading throughout the nations these promises that God has made are coming to be God's word is moving, God's spirit is moving, and he's calling people to faith from all these nations that he promised, nations that were not in existence, that God knew would come to be, are worshiping him. This is beautiful. This story is so much bigger than us. It's so much bigger than my momentary problems and frustrations and, and, and things that just upset me. It's so much bigger than me. But what I think at least I tend to do is I either like flip or flop from one end of the spectrum to the other. Where either it's like it's all about me or the story is just so big I don't really like have a place in it. Like God's been doing this since like Abraham and he lived thousands of years ago. And so who am I in Tempe, Arizona? Like yeah, blah, blah, blah. But we have to understand that, that just as God says that the mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, people who are not Israel are, are invited into this story with Israel that started way before us, he also says that we're members of the same body, individual members of the same body, individual members who have individual responsibilities, whose Savior calls them by name, whose Creator knows every hair on their head, who have a role in this story. The scholar and theologian Michael Goheen describes it this way. He says, God's redemptive goal is a cosmic, creation-wide renewal. He chooses a community to embody and make known that future. And individuals are summoned to join this community and play their role in the bigger story. This places the people of God at the center of the story with the vocation, with the job of embodying a creation-wide cosmic salvation. Super easy job description. No problem for all of us to, to shoulder, right? I look at this. Our job is to embody a creation-wide cosmic salvation. That seems a little daunting. I don't know about you guys. But it's because I approach this through my lens of individualism, where it's all up to me. It's all about me. This story is bigger than me, but it invites us in. It invites us to participate. So if you're like the, the like scholarly theology nerd, there's the Goheen quote for you. If you're like the creative poet like me, um, here's the Henry Nouwen quote, which talks about the same thing. Henry Nouwen says this, a mosaic consists of thousands of little stones when we bring our faces close to the mosaic we can admire the beauty of each stone but as we step back from it we can see that all these little stones reveal to us a beautiful picture telling a story none of these stones can tell by itself this is what our life and community is about each of us is like a little stone but together we reveal the face of God to the world Nobody can say, I make God visible. But others who see us together can say, they make God visible. 
This is how we step into this job description of embodying a cosmic, creation-wide salvation. Taking up our particular individual roles within this grand narrative, within this amazing body of community, with brothers and sisters who look and think like us and who don't look and think like us, who live around us and who live on the other side of the world that we may never meet until Jesus comes back from people that have lived before us and depending on when he comes back, maybe people that will live after us. This story is so much bigger than us, but the story invites us in. It invites us to participate as each of us are these little stones that God has crafted and formed and created with intention. The gifts, the talents, the interests, the passions that God has given you, he uses to share a piece of his story. The hurts, the trials, the temptations, the tribulations God uses to cover with his grace so that we can show what a forgiving father is like. God uses our strengths and our weaknesses together with the strengths and the weaknesses of the brothers and sisters around us to display to the world what his goodness is like. And yes, we are blessed in the meantime, but that blessing is not for us to hoard. That blessing is so that the world watching can see, ah, there's something about Redemption Tempe. There's something about the way they love and they care and they serve. There's something about the ways they engage their community. There's something about the way they preach from the Bible, and some of it I love, and honestly, some of it I hate, but they try to be authentic. There's something about the ways they confess when they mess up. They don't think they're perfect, but they know that God forgives. And so we see them forgive each other, and we see them forgive the community, and there's something intriguing about that. I don't know if that's your story, but as I've met with a lot of you in this room, I've heard versions of this story. I got a glimpse of faith by this group of people in college, in this parachurch ministry, at this church, uh, my family, whoever it was, I saw something different, and it was beautiful. No one has told me the story of like, I met one person who was perfect and had never sinned, and then I met Jesus through them. No, it's real life. It, it's strange things. It's, it's that offhanded comment that you just happen to say that really speaks to where that person is right then and there. And then the other person who's like, hey, can I pray for you? And then the other person's like, hey, did you know that this was in the Bible? And it's, it's this beautiful mosaic. God reveals through us about what he is like. It's beautiful that we get invited to participate into this story that is so much bigger than us. And historically, when the church gets this right, we see amazing things happen. We see in the Roman culture, the, the context of the early church, we see, um, for example, when, when Roman families uh, didn't want a child and they would just leave them out uh, to die from exposure, we see God's people move in and take those children in. And out of these people embodying the gospel, we see what we would call foster care and adoption emerge. We see God's people in, in the midst of horrific plagues where people are fleeing cities because of massive sickness and death. We see God's people understand that they're called to embody their faith and they move into those places of sickness and hurt and death. And we see what we would call doctors and hospitals emerge. We see God's people understand that he ordered creation in a certain way, that he is a God who reveals, that we can grow in our knowledge and understanding, 
And we see them value this knowledge and teaching. And so what emerges from God's people is what we would identify as universities and libraries. These amazing movements for the common good, for the sake of the nations, that all people are blessed by and through. But we also see what happens when God's people don't get this story right, when it's not embodied well. When thinking is distorted and, and people decide it's the best option to engage in crusades and, and murder others for their faith. We see what happens in our own nation's history when we use the Bible to justify the slave trade. We also see what happens when believers stand up and because of their understanding of the story, bring about the abolishment of slavery. Our past isn't pure, neither are we. But we see when God's people get his story right, figure out how to embody it well in their context, we see the spirit move. We see all people be blessed and come to faith. But there's a warning in this. John Perkins describes it well in his most recent book, One Blood. This is, this is how John Perkins says it. He says, God's vision for his church is one body, unified around the purpose of bringing him glory so that the watching world would know him and would be compelled to follow him. Our lack of unity has given the world cause to doubt his power and his existence. If you, call, if you by your own words, would call yourself a Christian, let's read that last sentence one more time. Our, not someone else's, not the people who disagree with you, our lack of unity has given the world cause to doubt his power and his existence. In a really hard conversation that I had two weeks ago, somebody asked me this question. Do you want to pursue being right or do you want to pursue grace? And it was one of those just like, oh, okay, I'm done. I tap out. <laughs> done. Because I can get so focused on what I want, what I want to pursue, being right, having justice, and we forget that God pours out his grace. That's what calls us to faith. That's, that's what sustains us in our faith. And so I think John Perkins is right. We have to consider what we're doing, how we're engaging one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, and how we're engaging those who, who don't yet know Christ. Because we, we have this story that not only is bigger than us, that not only invites us in, but it shapes us. And I've been struggling with like, what is the right word here? Because it doesn't only shape us. So I wish I could invent a word, but like, I'm not that cool. So what I would like to invent is a word that, that describes how it inspires hope, it inspires joy, and it, it alters or transforms our behaviors, actions, attitudes. The closest thing I could come up with is, so, I may not have told you guys this, but, you know, Ricardo, he's not the only pastor that played football around here, all right? And I don't want to get, you know, prideful, but I played um, two whole seasons in high school, freshman and JV, so I kind of know what I'm talking about. And, uh, and when I played JV football, what we would do is the night before the game, 
all the guys that I, I, I like to play defense, so all the guys that were on defense, we would get together and we would drink a bunch of Mountain Dew and we would watch these like big hits of the NFL videos, right? And we would get, like stay up late and get pumped up and now in hindsight, like maybe that's why I didn't play more football because I was staying up late drinking Mountain Dew the night before a game, but that's, a, that's another sermon. But what would happen is we would watch these videos and, and it would go throughout like NFL history, right? And you'd see like all these like black and white games and they're hitting each other and it's amazing. It goes through like, you know, Steel Curtain and Thick Butt Kiss and the, what was the Vikings, the purple, purple people eaters, there you go, right? And you would see all of these like big hits and we'd be like, yeah, and we're like pumped up, right? We're inspired, we're hopeful, we're going to do this in the game. There was also a component here of like, as we watch it, it's like, oh, okay, I see. I see what coach has been talking about. You do need to get your hips low. That is important. Oh, angles of pursuit. Yeah, I get it. I get it. So we would watch these videos. We'd get pumped up, but we would also watch to see like how our behavior should change. Now, it's not a perfect illustration because the next day we'd go play the game and like I would get destroyed, but this is what God is doing with his story. He's showing that from the beginning, as he's engaging in covenant with his people, it's about the nations. Throughout the Exodus, throughout giving the law in Deuteronomy, throughout um, crossing the Jordan, all of these examples that we looked at, it's about the nations. And then we see Jesus come, and Jesus embodies this. Jesus is consistently embracing people on the margins, people who are different, people whose society has overlooked. The last, the least, the lost. Whatever you've done for the least of these, Jesus says, you've done for him. And we see the church take those words seriously. And we see the early church being shaped around this, and they're embracing the people who are dis disabled and inviting them in, and the poor and inviting them in. And when Jesus says, go to all nations, we see the church doing that. And then we get this glimpse in Revelation of what this will look like. So we're going to look at three, three passages in the book of Revelation of what this will look like in the future when Jesus comes back. And so this is the first one. In Revelation chapter 5, John is having this vision, this heavenly vision that's very mysterious and very much like a sci-fi movie. Uh, but this is, this is what he says here. He says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. He's talking about Jesus. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom a unique set apart people a kingdom and priests mediators between God and man to our God and they shall reign on the earth so we have this reflection about what Jesus has done in Revelation chapter 5 for people from all tongues and tribes and nations we flip forward a few passages to chapter 7. This is what it says. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we see this reflection about what Jesus has done through, through his life, death, and resurrection. He's ransomed these people from all over the world, all throughout time, um, to come and be part of his kingdom. Be priests or mediators between God and man. And then we see this, this separate vision of this is happening. 
And there are people, so many people that no one could count the number from all of these places, every tongue and tribe and nation, that are worshiping God together. God is giving John this vision of what the future coming kingdom will look like when it's fully established on earth. And then if we go to the end of book, the book of Revelation, in, in chapter 21, we have this glimpse of, of when this happens, when heaven is reconciled to earth, when God has made all things new. As Jesus is reigning on the throne, this is, this is what John says it'll look like. And I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. The story is so much bigger than we are. It started way before us and it will go into eternity story invites us in, invites us to participate in it. The story doesn't just leave us there. The gospel shapes us. It inspires us. It gives us hope. So if this has been God's plan since Genesis 12, and this is what it will look like, if we believe that scripture is authoritative, this is what it will look like, then that matters for us today. That matters for how we choose to interact with one another. That matters for the people that we choose to invite into our homes, for where we choose to send our children to school, for where we choose to purchase or, or rent a home, where we choose to place ourselves in our community. If God has always been about blessing his people for those who don't yet know him, for those who are different nationally, ethnically, racially, gender, age, political, economic. The God, his mystery of the gospel is not only that he's reconciling God and man, but that he's reconciling man to man. The Jews and Gentiles are now fellow heirs, partakers of this promise. We see the promise fulfilled. The promise that God's people would be blessed so that all nations would be blessed, we just see this fulfilled in the book of Revelation. All nations will be blessed. So if this matters to us, then it should change us. It should change how we interact when somebody has a different point of view. It should change how we respond as we talk over the last few weeks about really difficult, sensitive things. It should challenge us in how we respond. Do we just say, I disagree and so I'm out of here? Or do we say, no, God's people are united through the Spirit, by the blood of, the, of Christ. This is the mystery of the gospel. Difficult, but we know his promise is true. We know he's faithful. His word endures. And so I think just like at our wedding, it's awkward and difficult, but family sticks around because they're family, because they understand the weight of the event. And so as God's people who are awaiting this final wedding feast of, of the bride of Christ and the bridegroom, this should form how we live our lives with those who are different than us, 
This should press us into diverse relationships that challenge and encourage us. This should help us take a posture of humility because just like other cultures are different to us, guess what? Our culture is different to other people as well. And just like God's love forgives us, shows us grace, and draws us into relationship, if we're supposed to be showing people what God is like, then maybe we should be doing that with our neighbors as well. Will you guys pray with me? Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving our nation before it was a nation. Thank you for loving nations and, and saving people in nations that, that were not created when you made that promise to Abraham. Thank you that there will be people who will be present when you reconcile heaven and earth that are from nations that no longer exist. Thank you that your story is so much bigger than us, God, and thank you for inviting us to participate in your story. Thank you for forming us and shaping us. God, would you pour out your grace upon us so that we may more accurately communicate, embody how beautiful you are, how good you are, how gracious you are. Lord, thank you for the context that you have sent us into, through our work, our, our neighborhoods, our friends, our families. Lord, would you bless our witness to them for the sake of your kingdom, for your name's sake, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Help us to love you more. Help us to love our neighbors more. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.